Well, good morning. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. And as you're finding your place in your Bible, I'd encourage you to keep your Bible or your device open this morning. We're going to be coming back to that again and again. The 2016 movie, Arrival, uh, starring Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, is a fascinating exploration into how language rewires our brain and shapes our reality. And at a critical point in the movie, a turning point in the movie, uh, Louise Banks, a linguist who's played by Amy Adams, needs to get an important message to a Chinese general, General Shang. And this message has the opportunity to result in action and that action may save the planet, right? And uh, so as, Louis, as Louise Banks is trying to get this message to General Shang, she needs a sign. And that sign is something that will change General Shang's mind, and General Shang's mind is not easily changed. Now, I'm not going to resolve the, the issue for you here. You can go watch the movie to see how it turns out, but it's, Hollywood, it's a Hollywood ending, right? So you can be encouraged there. Some of you need this resolution uh, to get to that place. But here's the thing, okay? A turn, a sign at a key point in the movie is often a cinematic device that helps us to get to the end, right? So what happens in the movie is there is a sign that results in authenticating the messenger who will bring the message. And that's exactly what happens in our text this morning. Here's what I'm going to tell you today. Signs pointing backwards to the Old Testament prophets and forward to the new heavens and the new earth, signs authenticate the messenger who will bring the message. And we'll look at our text under three headings this morning. First of all, we'll look at an odd transition. And secondly, we'll look at two authenticating signs. And then thirdly, we'll see one powerful command. So an odd transition, two authenticating signs, and one powerful command. Let's focus our attention on God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, Acts 9, starting at verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, among all these towns around Joppa and so forth, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, and translated in, in, into English means gazelle. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. 
Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing the tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we consider these two people, Aeneas and Tabitha, and what Peter did in their lives as he commands them to arise and they're healed, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel through the work of your Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all this morning, let's consider an odd transition. An odd transition. Do you remember the theme of Acts? It's there at Acts 1.8. It's you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? And that isn't just the mission of the book, book of Acts, it also forms an outline of the book of Acts. And when we get to Acts chapter 9, you have Saul's conversion, and immediately after Saul's conversion, you have this summary statement in 931. Look at your text here, Acts 931. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And you see what Luke is telling you here? He's telling you that the mission of Acts is being fulfilled, right? There, there's the church that's growing and being built up, and they're walking in the fear of the Lord. They're multiplying. The, the mission of Acts is being fulfilled, now remember, the first half of the book of Acts focuses on Peter and Jewish Christianity. And the second half of the book of Acts focuses on Paul and Gentile Christianity. And in the first half of the book of Acts, Peter is a prominent character. He's especially prominent in Acts 1 through 5 where in Acts 2, he addresses the crowd at Pentecost. In Acts 3, he heals the lame beggar. In Acts 4, he addresses the council. In Acts 5, he oversees Ananias and Sapphira and their trial. And then he heals many. But you get to chapters 6 through 9, and Peter recedes. Remember how Acts 6 begins? 
It starts with the injustice against the widows. And that serves as a backdrop to introduce Stephen in Acts 6 and 7. And so you have Stephen's arrest and his speech and then his stoning. You get to Acts 8 and you have two Philip episodes. And then Acts 9 is Saul's conversion. And Peter is only mentioned two times. Now, Saul's conversion is the Apostle Paul's origin story, right? And the second half of the book of Acts is devoted to Paul. So why not go from, just go from his origin story in Acts 9 to the rest of the story that's about Paul? Why come back to Peter here? And the next three chapters are devoted to, to Peter. The end of chapter 9, 10, 11, and 12, these are three Peter episodes. There's a double miracle in our text, and then there's a conversion story and an escape story. And the focus of this Peter block is the conversion of Cornelius in Acts 10 and 11. So we go from Acts 9, which is the conversion of Saul, who's the apostle to the Gentiles, to Acts 10, the conversion of Cornelius, who's the first Gentile convert. But notice that it's not Paul, it's not the new Saul, right, the apostle to the Gentiles, who leads the first Gentile convert to Jesus. It's Peter. You see, by interlocking these two stories, by reinserting Peter at this point in the text, Luke is showing you that Peter and Paul are on the same mission. It's not two different missions. It's not Peter, the apostle to the Jews, and Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. It's the same mission with different emphases. You see, Peter, the apostle to the Jews, still shares the gospel with the Gentiles. And Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, wherever he goes, he's preaching in the synagogue. He's still sharing the gospel with the Jews. You see, when God calls you to be his witness, he may call you to be a witness to a particular group of people, but he never calls you to be a witness only to that particular group of people. He never calls you to a particular group at the exclusion of all other groups of people. We're all on the same mission. And he's calling us to be his witnesses wherever we are and to whomever we're with. We're all on the same mission, though we may have different roles. We may have different responsibilities. We may have different emphases. The first movie I ever saw in the theater was Star Wars. Uh, it came out in 1977. I was six years old. <clears throat> Don't do the math. Um, so by the time The Return of the Jedi came out in 1983, I couldn't wait to go see it. And I was that annoying 12-year-old that went out and told everybody, sorry for spoiler alert here, it's been out for 40 years, that Luke and Leah, right, were brothers and sisters, uh, you know, that, that, they're, and that they're related, that Darth Vader is Luke's father, right? Sorry for ruining, ruining this for you. And uh, at the end of the movie, it focuses on the destruction of the Death Star. And so Luke Skywalker goes to the Death Star to rescue his father, Darth Vader, from the Emperor. And Han Solo leads a ground team, 
and the ground team has to go to Endor in order to destroy the shield that protects the, the Death Star. And then you have Lando Calrissian, and Lando leads an air attack in the Millennium Falcon through the infrastructure of the Death Star to hit the chain reactor, the reactor core, that causes a chain reaction in the Death Star. You think they would have learned something from the first, but there's still a chain reaction, right, that can destroy the Death Star. But here's the thing. Han Solo can't complete the mission by himself, right? All he can do is take down the shield. And Lando can't get past the shield unless Han does his part. Lando can't destroy the Death Star unless Han does his part. So both both entities, both Han and Lando, are essential to complete the mission. And that's exactly what Luke is showing you here, not Skywalker, the author of the book of Acts. Both Peter and Paul are essential for the mission, right? For the gospel to go to the Gentiles, for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. They're both on the same team. They're different people with different responsibilities, but they're both preaching the good news of Jesus. They're both Jesus' witnesses. And what I want to tell you this morning is that we too are His witnesses. That we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before, and we, get this, we are fulfilling the mission of the book of Acts. And each of us has a different role to play. Well, what's your role? Well, it could be many things, but I can tell you this. Pastor L may never get the, the opportunity to have a conversation with your coworker at Fleet Feet. And Steve may never get the chance to talk to your crazy uncle in Tupelo. And Zach doesn't know your fraternity brother from Ole Miss. And Wright hasn't spoken to your ninth grade friend on the volleyball team. And Laura doesn't hang out with your cohort in med school. And the elders haven't met your neighbor that just moved in next door. But God doesn't need Redeemer's leadership there. He's put you there. You see, we're all his witnesses. And it's a fantastic idea to learn to share your faith, and I want to encourage you to get training on how to share the gospel, but sometimes being a witness is as simple as inviting someone to church. It's as simple as working up the courage to say, come with me. Come with me to hear the good news of the gospel. You see, Luke uses an odd, an odd transition. Luke inserts this Peter narrative here to show you that in God's kingdom, different people have different roles, and we're all essential to the mission. So, an odd transition. Then we have two authenticating signs. Two authenticating signs. Our passage is a double miracle story. The first miracle is in verses 32 through 35, and the second miracle is in verses 36 through 42. Greg, can I get that map slide? The first miracle happens in Lydda, and Lydda is here. It's about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and it's on the road between Jerusalem 
and Joppa here. And interestingly, Peter goes to visit the saints at Lydda. Well, where did the saints come from? We have to assume, scholars conclude, that the saints come from Philip in Acts 8.40, where Philip, once he takes the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, is then preaching the gospel in all the towns up the coast, from Gaza to Azotus, all the way up to Caesarea. So there are saints now in Lydda that Peter goes to visit. And then in verse 35, Sharon is mentioned, and Sharon is this coast region between Joppa and Caesarea. And when we get to Joppa in verses 36 to 42, Joppa uh, here means beautiful, and it's about 12 miles from Lydda to Joppa. And so distressed disciples here in Joppa come to Lydda where Peter is and call him to come. Now, Joppa is the closest seaport to Jerusalem, and it's about 40 miles northwest of Jerusalem there. And if you remember in the Old Testament, Joppa is where Jonah went to flee from God. And at the end of our passage in verse 43, Peter stays with Simon the Tanner in Joppa. And this is where the Cornelius narrative begins in Acts chapter 10, is with Peter there in Joppa. Thanks, Greg. So in Lydda, there's a certain man, and his name is Aeneas, verse 33. And in Joppa, there's a certain disciple named Tabitha, in verse 36. Now, disciple in verse 36 is the one time in the New Testament that disciple appears in the feminine. This is a feminine noun. And Luke here is using gender pairing. He's speaking about a man and a woman. And this is a pattern that Luke uses to honor females in a world that passed over females, where women were ignored and quieted and pushed to the fringes of society and left out of the story, Luke is regularly naming women, and he's putting them in the center of the story. The description of Aeneas in 33 is only his condition. He's been bedridden for eight years, paralyzed, verse 33. But the description of Tabitha is much more robust. It gives us a Greek translation of her name. And then it goes on to say that she was full of good works and acts of charity in verse 36. And those acts of charity were almsgiving. That is, demonstrating that Tabitha was both wealthy and generous. And remember, when Peter arrives in Joppa, the widows come out and they're weeping, and what else are they doing? They're showing Peter all the clothing that Tabitha made for them. They're probably wearing this clothing, verse 39. And so Peter sees the physical fruit of Tabitha's ministry. You see, Tabitha's fulfilling James 1.27 before it's even been written that religion that is pure and undefiled is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Tabitha is doing Old Testament justice. She has a special care for the vulnerable, a special care for the widows. 
And widows would have been on the bottom rung of the social ladder. They were the most vulnerable in society with no one to care for them. And did you notice that Luke, once again, is bringing women to the center stage? He's focusing on the community of widows, just like in Acts chapter 6. And Luke is telling you that Tabitha is a disciple of note. Her faith is living and active. She's full of good works and acts of charity. She's caring for those that society doesn't notice. As Peter approaches Aeneas, who's paralyzed, verse 34, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and take your bed. And Aeneas arose. And as he approaches Tabitha, who's died, verse 40, Peter puts everyone outside, and he prays, and he calls her by name, and he takes her by the hand, and he presents her to the saints and to the widows. And in both of these stories, when the people saw the miracle, when the people saw what Peter did, they believed, verse 42, and they turned to the Lord. Verse 35. Why is Luke telling these stories? Well, he shapes, he styles the narratives in the pattern of the Old Testament prophets. 1 Kings 17, our Old Testament reading, Elijah raises the widow's son. And it's the same frame as our text this morning. There's an upper room, there's the removal of witnesses, there's prayer. And then there's the opening of the eyes. And in 2 Kings 4, there's a similar story where Elisha raises the Shunammite son. You see, Luke is telling you that Peter has the authority of an Old Testament prophet. But notice that Peter doesn't claim this authority for himself, right? To Aeneas, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. And with Tabitha, he prays for the Lord's help because Peter knows where his authority comes from. Why? Because he was there. He was there in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus, like Elijah and Elisha, raised the widow of Nain's son. And he was there in Luke 8 when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. And he was there in John 11 when Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb. And he was there in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus gave the disciples the authority to heal the sick. And they did. And Peter remembered in Acts chapter 3 when he used the power and authority that Jesus gave him to heal the lame beggar at the temple in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. See, Luke is using these stories to show you that Peter works in Jesus' name, that Peter represents Jesus, that Peter uses the power and authority of Jesus. You see, Luke is using these stories to authenticate Peter's apostolic authority. But why include this here? Right? Peter's done authenticating signs before. Why include these two miracles here? Well, Luke is setting up what comes next. You see, in Acts 10, Peter 
is going to be God's agent to convert the first Gentile, Cornelius. And I don't think we understand or appreciate how incredibly controversial this is. Today it's commonplace, it's understood, it's expected. Of course Gentiles are to be included in the kingdom of God. Most of us here are of what would be considered Gentile descent. But this was utterly shocking in Peter's world. Peter plays the part, you could say, of Copernicus. Before 1500, people thought that the earth was flat and the sun revolved around the earth. But in 1532, Copernicus says, no, no, we've got it all wrong. The earth is round and the earth orbits around the sun. And now the earth had always been round, right? It wasn't reality that changed. It was our understanding that changed. And it's been called a Copernican revolution. It's a radical shift in our thinking to properly align our thinking with reality. And now Peter is God's agent to bring about this Copernican revolution, to bring about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And God doesn't use Saul here, who would become Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles at this point. Why? Because Paul's a relatively recent convert. So to give this all the gravitas possible, God uses Peter, the most well-known apostle, to bring about the inclusion of the Gentiles. Now, I would argue that the inclusion of the Gentiles has been there all along, if you were reading your Old Testament closely. It's kind of like some of M.C. Escher's art with positive and negative space. Can I get that next slide, Greg? There you go. Imagine that for hundreds of years, we'd we'd been looking at this picture, and for hundreds of years, we'd only talked about the yellow horse and the yellow rider. You know, we create this whole story as we're talking about the yellow horse and the yellow rider, right? The rider's name is Fred, and the horse's name is Silver, which was rather unfortunate because he's yellow. And the rider's story goes something like this, you know, once upon a time, and and we're always focusing on the yellow horse and rider, and we're never talking about that other horse and rider. What would you call that? Rust? Orange? Right? He's been there all along. We've just never been talking about him. And I would argue that it's like that with the inclusion of the Gentiles. It was there all along. We just never talked about it. Thanks, Greg. Paul calls the inclusion of the Gentiles the mystery of the gospel. In Ephesians 3.6, Paul says this, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And in order to weave this inclusion into the fabric of the church, the New Testament is constantly arguing for unity and diversity. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
In Ephesians 2, 15 and 16, he writes, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And the Apostle John, as he portrays this vision of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 5, 9, writes this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. You see, this message is so radical, it's so revolutionary, that Luke uses these two signs to authenticate Peter's authority, to prepare his readers for this massive paradigm shift. And may I suggest that this message is still radical today? If you look at the landscape of the American church, because of generational sin, race-based chattel slavery, partiality, and injustice, many churches today are homogeneous groups that revolve around the gospel, but also revolve around their cultural preferences and cultural comfort. And there are even some today who are arguing that the multi-ethnic church can't work, that the multi-ethnic church won't work. But the multi-ethnic church has been God's design from the very beginning. What would it look like if we were to lean in more and more to the mystery of the gospel, that as Jesus ransoms people to himself, he also unites us across our differences, reconciles us into one body, and makes us one kingdom of priests. And our authority for this today is no longer just the Apostle Peter and the conversion of Cornelius and Joppa. No, it's the inerrant, inspired, authoritative Word of God. God's Word unpacks this mystery. God's Word celebrates the diversity in our unity as we're united to Jesus as God creates this beautiful community. You see, there are two authenticating signs. But then there's one powerful command. These two miracles share a command. Do you catch it? In verse 34, it's rise. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And in verse 40, the same word is translated arise. Peter puts them all outside and he kneels down and he prays and he turns to the body and he says, Tabitha, arise. And she opens her eyes. And I want you to understand the full weight of this word, the full theological import of this word, arise. You see, Peter has used this word or its equivalent multiple times already in Acts. Peter's used it in the past tense with a crowd at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He says this, Jesus, whom you crucified and killed, God raised him up. 
And when Peter's speaking in, in the Solomon's portico in Acts 3, he says, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And before the council in Acts chapter 4, Peter says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And Peter used it before the Sadducees in Acts chapter 5. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. You see, Peter again and again uses the word raised to talk about God raising Jesus from the dead. And it's not just Peter. Throughout the New Testament, the beauty and majesty and glory of the resurrection is described with the word raised, that God raised Jesus from the dead. So as Peter tells Aeneas, arise. And as he says to Tabitha, arise. There's a weightiness to that word. It's echoing, it's remembering, it's drawing power from the resurrection of Jesus. But you see, this use of arise is just a foreshadowing. It's just a down payment. You see, Aeneas, who's now walking, eventually will be laid in the grave. And Tabitha, now resuscitated, eventually will close her eyes again. But one day, in that day of days, at the end of all things, it won't be Peter calling out Aeneas and Tabitha's names. It will be Jesus. And he'll be calling out your name. And he'll be calling out my name. And he'll take us by the hand. And he'll say, Brian, arise. He'll say, Larry, Molly, arise. He'll say, Trey, Betsy, arise. And our eyes will open, never to close again. And we'll walk out of that grave, and Jesus will present us to the saints, alive, alive. And then, everything sad will come untrue. And every tear will be wiped away and death will be no more and we will behold the risen Christ face to face in all His beauty and majesty and glory. And the real adventure will begin. The adventure which all the best things of this life were merely a whisper. They were merely a glimmer of the joy that will then be ours and we'll be home. And as that certain hope lives in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be His witnesses. We will be His messengers, authenticated to carry His message wherever we are and to whomever we're with. You see, signs pointing backward to the Old Testament prophets and forward to the new heavens and the new earth authenticate the messenger who will bring the message. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we see these signs 
to authenticate the beautiful message that Peter has of the inclusion of the Gentiles and the conversion of Cornelius as we hear that echo, the power of the resurrection, that one day you will call us by name and our eyes will open and we'll walk out of that grave. Father, would that cause hope to dwell in our hearts by the power of your Spirit? And would you empower us to be your witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? I ask this in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Let's